0: Hello listeners. Welcome to this episode of UniTalks. In this episode, Rihanna from London is our host. She's an aspiring scientist interviewing Anne Phillips, a professor of political science at the London School of Economics, about her research and being a woman in a male-dominated field. Also in this episode, our agony aunts Anne-Marie and Paul will be giving you tips on study skills, assessments and avoiding plagiarism. Now over to Rihanna. I'm Rehana. Welcome to Uni Talks podcast,
1: brought to you by Institute of Art and Ideas in association with the Brilliant Club and King's College London. My name is Rehana, I'm 18 years old and I'm living in London. I'm currently studying maths, chemistry and biology A level. I've chosen these subjects because I love science and I love maths. Today I've just finished having my biology lesson and now we're just gonna go off and visit Anne Phillips who is a professor at um, Dundas School of Economics and she teaches political science and I'm quite nervous and excited to visit her and ask her a few questions. I was checking up on um, TFL, journey planner. So I think we can just take a bus Oh, the bus stops there, by the way. Yeah. On the other side of the road. <laughs> Studying um, sociology AS level has influenced me because we learn about feminism. So I would love to ask Anne Phillips, why there's so many different types of feminism, and can anyone be a feminist? Is it the next stop? Um, so, currently it's raining right now. We just got off the bus and we're trying to figure out where we need to go. Oh, there's a lecture. So, we're just peeping through the window and we can see a lot of students working hard on their laptops. Um it seems quiet and there it seems there's a lot of motivation. I can see a guy sleeping. <laughs> Here's one here. LSC. So I guess it's somewhere here. We finally made it. <laughs> quite nervous, quite really excited. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is up. I'm just like wow, it looks really nice. Hello. Hello there. My name is Ray Hornor.
2: Hello. How are you? I'm Anne. I'm Very good. good to meet
1: you. you? Yeah. Come on in then. So I'm with Anne Phillips here in LSE. I've heard that you do political science, right?
2: Well, that's a good question. I mean, my t- my job title <laughs> is. Um, the Graham Wallace Professor of Political Science. But, I mean, if you study politics, it's as though there are, there are sort of very, very different directions in politics. And I don't actually think of myself as a political scientist, so I'm always a bit embarrassed about, about my title. <laughs> I mean, I think of myself as a political theorist and the kinds of things that uh, that I work on are, I work on things about thinking about, you know, what's the best system of political representation or how do we, how do we create a world that's more equal between men and women or what it is to be equal in a multicultural society. So for me, these are, these are questions of political theory.
1: What is feminism and who can be a feminist?
2: Yeah. Good questions. I think I probably have a very simple definition of feminism. It's the belief that uh, men and women should be equal and should be regarded as such. From my point of view, Anyone can be a feminist so in my course on feminist political theory I have uh, both uh, both men and women in the course So I don't think you have to be a woman to be a feminist But having said that you can give a simple definition There are a lot of disagreements between feminists about what exactly that means so that of itself doesn't kind of completely Explain explain what it is and also you need to think about why are people so resistant to it? because if you say it's about men and women being equal I mean, you know, who's going to go around today saying, oh, I think women are inferior to, uh, to men or, oh, I don't think that uh, men and women should be regarded as equals. And yet there's a huge amount of resistance to the, uh, the idea of feminism or the label of it. So there's, there's clearly more to it than just, yeah. that, uh, just that sort of simple definition
1: because I've done a sociology yes, and we're learning about yeah. feminism within and there's th- I know there's different types of feminists yes. so there's marxist feminists there's liberal feminists radical feminists and different feminists yes so um that I think one of the reasons why people kind of resist is because there's so many different types of feminism so you, you don't know which one you want to fit in but I do believe women and men should be equal. Yes, and yeah. I have a lot of friends that are feminist, I can say. so. My That's friend... good to know, yes. Right. <laughs> my friend Kafaya, she asked a question that when someone makes a sexist remark, do you think it's normalised?
2: I think there's definitely a normalisation of ways of talking, ways of thinking, ways of speaking that just become so normalized that even if you feel that they're a bit offensive or you feel a bit put down by them, you just let them pass or you don't want to be the person who's who's making a fuss. So one of the things that I find is, you know, I've done work on feminism pretty much all of my working life and you get fed up with being the person who's always making the feminist points. You know, you feel as though you're in a room and they look at you and their eyes roll and they think, oh, she's off again. <laughs> and, you, and so sometimes you just don't want to bother because you kind of feel that, you know, people have just heard it before and uh, you don't want to be endlessly the person going on about the same thing. And that, that's difficult. And then that becomes another way in which you let things pass.
1: My friend asked another good question, sorry. Right, right. (laughs) Given the current political climate today with issues regarding immigration, race, religion and confronting sexual assault, what do you think young people can do that will be effective in helping solve these issues.
2: Well, I must say, I think it is very much up to young people to do something about it. So, I I think probably one of the most important things is to realise that the world can be different. Because I think I think we kind of too much accept the way things are, as just the way things always have been or always will be, and the, not enough uh, imagination about how to actually make make a difference in the world. So. I mean, first of all, challenging the idea that things need to be the way they are, but also not getting complacent about where we've got to. Because I think this is, this is particularly true in relation to feminism, that people kind of look back over 100 years ago. 100 years ago, women didn't have the right to vote in this country. I mean, sort of 1918 was when the first women were allowed the right to vote. And people look back over the last century and they think, look at the changes in voting rights. Look at the changes in education. More, more girls go on to university now than boys. Uh, look at the changes in terms of the work women do and so on. And people get a kind of complacency about it. But in fact, there are enormous problems still left in the world, including, you know, in one's daily life, all around one.
1: Yeah, because in the science industry, we all yes. know there's not a lot of female scientists yes
2: yes
1: and especially in engineering last year um my my chemistry class with there was only two girls me and my friend Mm. and the rest were boys so it was really like confusing because oh wow all my friends were all doing english lit sociology history i was really like confused and shocked So do you think there's still a big stereotype? Yes,
2: yeah, absolutely. There's still a huge kind of gender differentiation in the kinds of subjects that that people go on to study. And I think the lack of women going into the sciences and into engineering is still a a really, uh, really big issue. So I'm pleased you're doing sciences. Yeah,
1: (laughs) (laughs) because all my science teachers are also male as well, so there's not a lot of female science teachers that I could even look up to. But do you think slowly men and women are becoming equal and what would you like to see in the future?
2: Well, in my view that one of the biggest uh, problems that remains is um,
1: the fact that women
2: in every country in the world still primarily take responsibility for all of the care work within society. Not all of it, that would be an exaggeration because, you know, there have been changes. Men spend more time uh, with their children nowadays than they used to do. But it's still very much the responsibility for caring for the young, for the sick, for the elderly. In every society that we know, it remains primarily women's responsibility. And, you know, until men and women actually start sharing that, the patterns in which women may start out doing exactly the same sorts of things as men do, but eventually they will be the ones who give up work, uh, start working part time, aren't able to kind of combine work with family. I mean, there's, there's a kind of statistic that always kind of strikes me. If you look at the um, MPs in the House of Commons, the proportion of male MPs who are parents is somewhere around uh, 70, 72, 73 percent, which I think is probably roughly roughly the proportion in the population as a whole. But the proportion of women MPs who are parents goes down to about 40%. And if you think about what's going on there, it's basically saying, if you're a man, you can combine having children with being a Member of Parliament. If you're a woman, you might have to choose, right? One or the other. You know, it's much more difficult to combine. So I, th- I think for me that's one of the really huge changes that needs to take place is to is to actually get to a point where men and women alike share the the work of caring
1: and also we all know there's still a pay gap yes so do you think because men are more likely to get paid more so the female will be like, oh, um, I get paid less, so let me just stay at home and look after the children. Is that, do you think that's one of the reasons why?
2: Or Well, I think it's certainly true that one, once you have a kind of difference in the in the incomes of men and women, which depressingly is the case when young men and young women leave university with the same degrees and the same qualifications, already uh, men on average, earn more. When you think about that, what on earth is going on there other than just an assumption that men are worth more than women? It's astonishing that that's still the case. But I think also what what happens is, particularly at the at the point at which people have children and you make a choice about who's going to reduce their hours of work or give up work, the rational thing to do is for the person who is earning less. And then, you know, the whole pattern just continues.
1: Do you think the glass ceiling still exists?
2: Yes, yes, uh, yes. I mean, it, it doesn't exist in one sense, which is that there have been nearly every position or occupation that you can think of. There has been a woman or three women or 10 women who have managed to break through that glass ceiling. So there are not many occupations where you could say there has never been a woman in this position, but having the odd individual woman here and there really to my mind doesn't make a huge difference it's kind of i think the numbers count you get change when you get a sufficiently large body of women doing things that are different from what traditionally women have been doing
1: and can you see it in like a reverse, so men going into more female like jobs i haven't particularly noticed that i must say
2: you know so for example In terms of uh, men going more into nursery school teaching, or there are a few more men who go into nursing, but not on a huge scale. So I think the jobs that are very much thought of as women's jobs, it hasn't yet been the case, I think, that there's been a, a big shift. But I do think, and this is the other side of the ways things have been changing in our society, that there are a lot of young men who no longer have what they thought of as the traditional routes for their career development and so many jobs in manufacturing for example that have disappeared and don't yet see what their alternative is so I mean I don't think it's a happy time to be a young man (laughs) particularly uh, any more than to be a young woman I think we're in a period in which it's actually it's quite a difficult time to be young um, though hopefully uh, it will also be a period in which you'll feel that you can make all kinds of changes in the world.
1: Because um, last year as well, I was in my sociology class and it was all girls except from two boys. Yes. So I feel like they feel the same when it, yes. when the table is turned yes, as well. Yes, absolutely, yes. Because um, when we were talking about something related to feminists, all the limelight was on them yeah. because we wanted to hear their opinion. Yeah. And their opinion was very different to someone who's doing science as well. So I feel like the tables can mm, be turned mm, as well. Mm,
2: yeah. Yeah, And to be the person who's supposed to to speak for an entire sex, right, you know, so that you're the only woman in the room, so you're supposed to give the women's point of view, or you're the only man in the room, so you're supposed to give the man's point of view. And uh, it's a horrible burden to have to carry, (laughs) whichever way around it is. None of your friends got any more questions for me? Those... Don't phone them up and ask for more but questions, have... that'll do.
1: Maybe, is that OK? Because <laughs> I've got one more maybe. How have you overcome and worked in situations where it is completely male-dominated?
2: Mm. Well, that is a very good question because uh, teaching in a university, in, in most areas, do tend to be male-dominated. Not, I mean, our students are half and half, men and women, but my colleagues are overwhelmingly male. And uh, have been for most of my most of my working life, and that you know that does get uh, a bit stressful. I mean, basically, you make you make good friendships with other women working in your department, working in kind of related departments. We organise workshops, lunches, share experiences. Uh, so all of that is uh, is quite important, um, and you know, and there are always lots of male colleagues as well who are who are supportive. But it is it is something that uh, is an issue, particularly in the early years when you're starting out.
1: I think I can experience the same as well, especially with science. Yes. You know, having a class full of boys, they're more yeah. confident, yeah. they're more into the subject. And there's, then I can share the same experience with my other female friends because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. we feel the same when it comes to, oh, the boys talk so loud, da-da-da. Like, we can all relate when it comes to... Yes. Male domination so, so so
2: when you share your experiences then that makes you more confident
1: does it i guess just you just know there's someone feeling the same as yeah, you yeah. So, it's just so it's not just you, you. yes yeah. absolutely i know you've written a lot of books so do you prefer writing books or teaching
2: they are very different sorts of things i mean in fact quite a few of the uh, the books that i've written have come very much out of my courses you know so the teaching has has, has prompted me to spend more time working on something because it's become clear either that I think something that my students very much disagree with, in which case I want to kind of work out a better set of arguments that I can convince them next time, or because in the teaching it's become clear to me that, as I say, there are real difficulties about how, how you work out what's the best way forward. So I, to me, they're very, they're very connected. Teaching kind of raises a lot of questions and then the writing, in a way, you're trying to answer the questions.
1: So is there any other sort of degrees that involves politics or anything similar to what you teach?
2: Well, I think, I think politics is, is linked to broadly what we call the social sciences, sociology, uh, social policy, international relations, history. On the other side, philosophy.
1: What did you study at university?
2: Uh, I studied philosophy and politics, and then I, I I then went on to do a, a master's degree in uh, West African politics.
1: Can you tell me what interested you about the subject?
2: To tell the truth, I went to university to study philosophy and politics, and, I think at that time, I mean this is a kind of comment on what it's what it's like to be a young woman studying in university. At that time, I, um, I actually didn't think I was clever enough to carry on doing philosophy. Philosophy seemed, uh, I really enjoyed it, but it seemed very high theory. So I thought I'd carry on and do the politics instead. I mean, oddly, as my life's continued, I returned to doing something that's much more philosophical and theoretical. But it's interesting when I look back that I didn't have the same kind of confidence that I feel that some of the young men on my course did about being able to go on and do philosophy
1: so was there any like specific subject in school that led you to this interest?
2: So I, I did English uh, history and French, but uh, really I just had a very strong sense that I wanted to do something different and something new though so in fact I then I spent quite a long time wishing I'd applied to do English literature because really? uh, I spent a lot of my uh, university time reading novels and thinking I'd much rather read novels than read philosophy mm-hmm. or politics, though everyone who studied English literature said it's not about reading novels anyway. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so and I'm, I'm glad in the end that I did what I did.
1: That's all my questions, unless you want me to ask one more. Yeah, OK, go on. Yeah.
2: Um.
1: What are three top tips that you would give to both young boys and girls on how to overcome stereotypes, racism, gender and just general inequality?
2: OK, one is to be yourself um, and try as much as you can to be who you want to be rather than what people are expecting of you, which is which is not always easy. The second, I think, is to challenge sexism and racism where you see it. And that's not easy, too, because it's always easier to just uh, go very quiet. You know, to be constantly challenging people is, is hard work. But I think that has to be done. And I can't think of what a third one would be.
1: <laughs> so it was really nice meeting you. And thank you for answering all my questions.
2: Well, it was very nice meeting you and very best of luck with your science uh, studies. And I thank hope you. that you you'll find yourself soon in a class where there are, there's rather more women than than just men.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. So I just had my chat with Anne Phillips, and it was an amazing experience and I loved hearing about her experience in university and how she kind of felt left out being one of the few female there and that kind of has inspired me to work hard and overcome the gender barrier so I just want to break that barrier where I know I'm I'm a girl and I made it into science. Next you'll be hearing from our admissions agony aunts Anne-Marie and Paul. Anne-Marie and Paul both work at King's College London in the admissions department. Paul is the director of admissions and Anne-Marie is the director of a widening participation. They'll be answering questions that you've sent in about applying to university.
3: Hello, I'm Anne-Marie, I'm the Director of Widening Participation at King's College London. What that means is I help young people to go to university. I studied English Literature at university, before that I grew up in a town called Doncaster and I was the first in my family to go to university.
4: Hi, I'm Paul, I'm the Director of Admissions at King's College London. I'm responsible for all of the programmes that we have here at King's, which is a total of about 90,000 applications each year.
3: We're your admissions agony ants. You went to join I in. I am, you made only <laughs> said it twice <laughs> Why <laughs> aren't you joining in? It's really embarrassing! <laughs> we, we are, are the admissions Admission
4: bag so This week we're talking about study skills and studying at university.
3: Okay, so really interestingly, we didn't get many questions on this particular topic. So we've actually asked our colleagues at the Brilliant Club who work with students out in schools. Okay, first question.
4: So Anne-Marie, could you just outline for us the different ways of studying at university? So what will I be experiencing in terms of teaching? Because it's quite different from school, isn't it?
3: Yeah, so when you come to university, you're going to be taught in a variety of different ways and very often it's linked to the type of subject or the discipline you're studying. So most universities will use a combination of things like lectures, where you're in a very large room with uh, an academic talking at the front and you're taking notes and maybe there's an opportunity to ask questions at the end. Lots of universities will use seminars. These are small groups of around 15, 10 to 15 students, where you'll be discussing material, debating it, appreciating each other's perspectives. Some universities will teach using tutorials. This is usually two-on-one or one-on-one teaching, where you'll get to explore your ideas in real depth. If you're a student who is studying mathematics, you might be doing problem sheets. If you're someone who is doing a science degree, maybe you'll be in the laboratory. So universities will teach in all different ways. And what's really important is that when you're considering where you'd like to study, you actually look at how they're gonna teach you. Paul, we've got a question here. How do you manage your time between studying and the rest of your life?
4: So you'll be given your timetable in advance of studying and it's important to get all of your lectures and seminars written down in that particularly if you're an arts or humanities student so if you're studying anything like English or social science that you put in some time for reading as well because actually your lectures are only a framework of your course whereas if you're a scientist it's quite often much more like a Monday to Friday 9-5 timetable once you've got all of that learning into your calendar and time for, for working through problem sheets, writing essays then you can fit in all of the other things, working with the Student Union, Clubs and Societies, etc.
3: So I think our number one study skill really is about getting organised, understanding what's required of you as a subject and making sure you've plotted out your time and uh, and all of your activities. I think
4: the other thing I'd say is about libraries. So if I'm honest, when I was at sixth form, I don't think I'd ever really been into the school library. Why would you need to? At A-level you get given a textbook and that textbook or those series of textbooks takes you and guides you through the whole of the A-level course. The big challenge at university and the big challenge for students is that you can't rely on one text to give you your finished essay and I think that was perhaps the biggest shock for me uh, studying a degree like economics was the sheer amount of reading so actually I think using the libraries uh, is really crucial to succeed on many degree programmes completely different to school and a real culture shock for me.
3: Yeah I mean if you'd like a bit of insight into what a reading list looks like at a university university. Lots of universities will publish their reading lists online. I know that uh, a few of my students that I work with have been looking at the University of Sheffield English uh, reading lists to get a real sense of what's going to be required in terms of the volume of reading and the types of reading.
4: And that goes back to that point we were saying about picking the subject you absolutely love because it's really, really hard when it's self-directed learning, spending time with with books and and reading if it's not something you've got a real passion for.
3: So I think that's sort of related to the next question we've been asked, which is how different is studying at university compared to studying at school?
4: So I think it's quite different. You're going to be spending perhaps 30 hours each week studying one or two subjects. I guess the other thing is that actually a lot of it's on you. Realistically, the tutors and teachers at the university aren't going to be chasing you for homework. So it's really important you hit the deadlines because if you're late, then often the mark that you can get actually gets capped or even you score zero and it may not be possible to change that. So you need to be organised, you need to be motivated and I think that's one of the biggest differences.
3: Yeah, I think there's also quite key differences in terms of of how you're assessed. So um, at universities often we'll have uh, what we call formative pieces of work and these are essays, problem sheets um, pieces of work that we're asking you to do to help you develop uh, your skills, to develop your academic knowledge and they don't usually count towards your final mark. However we'll also have summative assessment. Now summative assessment might be an exam, it might be a piece of coursework, other courses might ask you to do a very large piece of work called a dissertation which is essentially a very, very long research projects and these are the marks that count towards your final degree classification.
4: That's absolutely right. So a student here is asked about do students complete projects together? So I think some of the bits of work that students do is effectively their own work but actually university life also has a number of projects and I think one of the great things about project work at universities is it's a really good example of what your future work career is going to be like. It's very rare that many people work in isolation uh, in their job and actually to work together to develop interpersonal skills to work on project skills and to work on presentation skills I think could be really valuable when you're going and looking for a graduate level job or indeed when you're in that graduate level job. So Anne-Marie we've got a question from a student here they're asking about so what, what happens if you're struggling with your work or maybe even worse still what happens if you fail a module?
3: Yeah, so I think it's really important to understand that most students struggle with the transition from A level to university. People don't talk about that often enough. It is quite a big jump. So the first thing I'd say is, see what you can do to prevent getting into that position. So that might mean going along to the study skills sessions that are delivered by the university. It might mean going along for your library tour, making sure you're setting yourself up with the skills and the knowledge to be as successful as possible. If things are still feeling really hard, it's important that you have a conversation as soon as you can. So a really great person to go to will be your personal tutor. And this is essentially someone who is an academic, but they're responsible for your uh, sort of pastoral and academic well-being. And what's really important is to keep going. So lots of people get their first essay or their first mark and it's not what they'd like it to be and they become quite downhearted quite quickly. The first term and the first year at university is actually about finding uh, how you learn, finding the things that interest you and, and really get into grips with that higher level study. So stay resilient, seek help early and go along to the workshops and other services that can help you to be as successful as possible.
4: And of course many students will be doing the EPQ the extended project qualification and that's a really good preparation isn't it for university level study.
3: Yeah, I know our academics really like the EPQ because it shows us that you're able to use a library, you're able to do your own research, you're able to generate your own thoughts because what university is about at the end of the day is about generating new knowledge and that brings me on to the point around plagiarism. If you don't know what plagiarism is, I'd highly recommend go away, have a little Google and read up on what it is because a core value of the university is that we generate our own knowledge, our own insights and that we're highly respectful of each other's work. So that means we learn how to reference It means that we understand how to attribute quotes, how to give people credit for the things that they've discovered before us.
4: And of course, the students listening to this podcast will be in the process of applying to university and plagiarism is really important. Even at that stage, Uh, UCAS obviously check every application, each personal statement to make sure that students haven't plagiarised from each other. So it's really important that students understand that plagiarism is not good, not just when you get to university, but also during that application phase too.
3: Absolutely. It's all about good academic practice. Developing good study skills habits can mean that you avoid these things like plagiarism. Thanks for listening to this episode of Uni Talks.
4: In next week's episode, we'll be talking about practicalities, anxieties and apprehensions.
1: That's all from our admissions agony aunts. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another Uni Talks podcast. Good luck with all your applications. So now I'm going to ask um, some questions that's been asked for an Oxford interview. So I have two Aha, for you today. Right, right. <laughs> so if you were to form a government of philosophers, what selection process would you use?
2: I see, right. And if I ask this, if I answer this wrongly, I don't get into Oxford. Is that right?
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I would uh, I would uh, insist that there had to be equal numbers of women and men. That would be my first kind of criterion. And then I would, uh, no, I've probably already failed the test. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, and I'd also want to know that they, they came from both different periods in history and different regions of the world, because I think one of the problems with the way that we study philosophy is that we study from a very narrow list of key philosophers.
0: Will I pass? Do I get in? <laughs> In next week's episode we'll be joining 17-year-old Christian, who will be travelling to King's College London to interview reader in philosophy, Christopher Hamilton. UniTalks was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas in association with The Brilliant Club and King's College London. The IAI's vision is to create a world where philosophy and big ideas are at the heart of society. The Brilliant Club is an award-winning charity. They work to increase the number of pupils from underrepresented backgrounds, progressing to highly selective universities. UniTalks is produced by Hannah Renton, Irene Carter and Bridie Addison-Child at the IAI, with editing on this episode by Hannah, and help from Anna Crisp, Helena Berry and Genevieve Marchiniak, and from The Brilliant Club, Michael Savinsky, Jordana Knight and Jade Hanley. Thanks for
3: listening.